This morning we're heading back into Philippians to finish chapter 1. But I don't want you to think that we're walking away from the resurrection. If anything, in this passage, we're going to head farther into it. Because without the resurrection, our passage this morning wouldn't sound anything like it does. But with the resurrection, Paul thinks about his time in prison and his possibility of martyrdom very, very differently than we would normally expect. So we'll get to listen in this morning as Paul thinks out loud, so to speak, about the options in front of him as we close out this first chapter in his letter to the Philippians. Young Christians, here's what I want you to listen for this morning. Paul says that he's trying to decide between two things. Which one does he want more than the other? He's trying to decide, and he says that it's hard for him to choose. So listen for those two things. See if you can tell what they are. And then see if you can tell why it's hard for him to choose between the two. This is the way the good news changes everything in us before it ever changes things around us. I'm going to read Philippians 1.18 through the end of the chapter. And as we pick up in the middle, I want you to remember where we left off in the letter. Paul has just finished discussing the way that some people are trying to annoy him by preaching the gospel out of rivalry. And so he continues. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in sincerity... Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will indeed rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live on in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all, for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to boast in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that is from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. So you are engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Join me as we pray. Lord Jesus, in your goodness, you have given us the same conflict as Paul, because really it's the same conflict you have always had. It is your fight against the curse, 
your fight against unbelief and against non-worship and rebellious worship, you are good to fight to have all of us for yourself. And so we will rejoice even when you are preached in pretense. But this morning we ask that you will give us more of your mercy. Will you give me sincerity as I preach to myself and to our church? Give us all sincerity to hear with submission and belief and with greater rejoicing. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. All right, if you hear nothing else in this sermon, no matter what else we say about any of the parts of this passage, I want you to hear this. Paul couldn't be any clearer that the gospel's work in us should be the source of our continual growth and our endless rejoicing. The real trick of it in a passage like this is figuring out how to end up there when he starts with such a seemingly morbid toss-up at the beginning. I've been torn trying to make a decision before, but never like Paul is here. When he says that he's hard-pressed between the two, I hear it the way that we use the cliché, stuck between a rock and a hard place. That's not what Paul is saying. We use that phrase to mean that we have no good options in front of us. And Paul's saying that he can't lose. Sometimes when we feel especially hopeless, we will throw our hands up and say, it doesn't matter what I try, I'm damned if I do and I'm damned if I don't. And Paul's saying, because Jesus was damned in my place, I will not be damned. So now teetering on the edge of martyrdom, it's a win-win for me. He says it as simply, but far more substantially than we talk about deciding between two trips, one to the mountains or one to the beach. What do you want to do for summer break? But Paul's not picking a vacation spot. He's weighing the likelihood of his release against his execution. If he dies, he says, he will be with Christ. So selfishly, that's my preference. If his personal comfort was all that was on the line, then that's the clear winner for Paul. But since it's not, since there's ministry left to do, since there are other disciples who can benefit, then not dying, sticking around for more suffering, that seems more necessary and more beneficial for everyone else. In a discussion like this, you would expect some sort of frowning but dutiful resignation. Paul letting out a compliant sigh. If this is what there is for me, then this is what I'll take. But this doesn't compete with Paul's thoughts on rejoicing. This whole discussion is part of it. If anyone's earned the right to gripe, it would be Paul. He opens a letter written from a a Roman jail by telling the Philippians how much he prays for them, how often he is thankful for them, and he does all of it with joy. 
While people contend with him for popularity and influence, Paul doesn't say that he's jealous. He just rejoices. He's glad regardless of the motivations behind it because other people hear the gospel. Now here he rejoices because he's able to look ahead to his own deliverance. Not deliverance from the Romans, by the way. Deliverance as in his ultimate salvation. Notice that he's confident about everything ending in his deliverance, he says. And that's true whether he lives or dies. In the meantime, he's going to stick around. He can see the way that Jesus will use him to serve the Philippians for their good. At great personal cost to him. Take a minute and think about this scenario. This decision that sits in front of Paul. He has no control over it. He doesn't get to cast a vote for execution or parole. He's trying to decide which one is better. Think about that inside the story of Scripture. What we see in Paul here is Jesus turning Israel's grumbling backwards. Remember how Israel, delivered from suffering and bondage in Egypt, grumbled in the wilderness? They were sure that God had taken them out on some 40-year death march, that that was his plan all along, some sort of sick pleasure like a kid on an anthill with a magnifying glass. They used to greet Moses in the morning saying, Why has the Lord brought us out here to die? Weren't there enough graves in Egypt? Surely the Lord must have thought our slavery was too easy, so he brought us out here to starve. Now following the resurrection of Jesus, Paul has been handed over to bondage in a Roman prison. He expects to suffer and eventually die for the Lord's name, whether that's now or eight years from now. But when Paul goes into prison, he sings. While he's in jail, he preaches. And he says odd things to other disciples like, The Lord hasn't brought me here to kill me. He's brought me here to resurrect me. I can wait for it here in jail, or I can wait for it while serving the church out there. And if I die in prison, then I'll wait for the final resurrection in Jesus' presence. Any way you slice it, I am going to celebrate over what the Lord has given me. And before I go any farther, I need to pull back and give you one caveat. Sometimes we can read passages like this or hear sermons like this one, and we can hear that death is good. Or we can be mistaken and hear someone saying that suffering really isn't that bad. So let me be very clear Paul isn't saying either of those, and neither should we. Death isn't a celebration. For Christians, there is celebration on the back side of it when Jesus embraces one of his saints. But death is still the enemy that we all want put away once and for all. He's the enemy that Jesus died and rose to trample underfoot. Remember, there's no way to mistake that Jesus hated the cross. Jesus didn't call his suffering fun. 
As the writer, of the Hebrews, writer to the Hebrews says, he endured it because of the joy set before him. He hated the cross, but he did it for the joy on the other side of it. Jesus never claimed to come and make death good. He claimed to come and take it away. The difference now for us is that death isn't a bully that we fear. That's exactly the kind of defiance we see at the end of this passage. Look back down in the passage now. I love the way Paul says it. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that I get to hear about all of you standing together, arm in arm, in one spirit, united against all of your opponents, fighting for the faith, so confident in it that you laugh at your opponents. That's better than any threat or trash talk you could utter. Paul says when you do that, it's a sure signal to them that they're the ones who need to be scared and that you have nothing to fear. Less than a century after this was written, Polycarp, one of the disciples of the Apostle John, was martyred. He was martyred at the age of 86. So the deal was offered to him like this. Swear an oath, Polycarp, and we'll let you go. We only want one thing from you. All you have to do is revile Christ once. And we'll put out our torches. To which Polycarp answered, For 86 years I have been his servant, and he has never done me any wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? So they bound him and burned him alive. According to tradition, Polycarp was so unmoved, so peaceful in the fire, that the soldiers presiding over it got scared. They ran up and stabbed him because they were afraid the fire was powerless to kill him. In the eyewitness account of his martyrdom, the writer comments that this is fairly normal when they witness executions like this. He and his brothers have seen, he says, many noble and brave martyrs endure torture and death, unafraid of the pain, as if Christ were standing beside them conversing. When we read things like that in church history, sometimes we blush a little bit. We treat them like urban legends. It's not an urban legend, it's not a story that just sounds good. We see it in Acts. We get to see it with Stephen stoning. The first martyr we see after Pentecost, Luke says that the people who heard and hated his preaching ground their teeth at him. But filled with the Holy Spirit, Stephen gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of him while he was pelted with stones. This passage... This letter from Paul is a beautiful picture of what Jesus' resurrection looks like at work in us. Because remember who Paul is. Paul isn't just a saint. Like all of us, Paul is a saint with a past. He was the one holding the coats at Stephen's stoning. When he was older, he became the torturer. He made a career pursuing and beating Christians, in his words, 
to try and make them renounce Jesus. That's what he was on his way to do in Damascus when the resurrected Jesus knocked him to the ground with his grace. Now he knows that none of these things can stop the gospel. Because in the gospel, Jesus carries us all the way past death to resurrection. Later in chapter 3, Paul will say that he longs to know the power of Jesus' resurrection. But here we get to see that he has already found the freedom and the joy of it. So Paul gets to state his preference plainly. I would rather be with Christ. I would rather my suffering cease and get to see my Savior face to face. He can say that plainly and then submit so that Christ is honored. Not my will be done, but yours, Lord. On earth as it is in heaven, let your will be done on earth and in my body. For the sake of your body, the church, Paul might have prayed. And on the heels of a discussion like that, following closely after Paul's discussion of what he faces, we might brace ourselves for a sterner and stauncher view of the gospel. Paul wagging his finger at us and telling us to take this stuff more seriously the way he does. We might expect to find a description of the gospel that finds righteousness in in disapproval and virtue in scowling. That's not what we get. Because if death can't wipe the smile off of Paul's face, there is sure no way that the gospel is going to do it. He says that he's glad for the work. He's confident that Jesus will give it to him so that the Philippians can be pushed farther to grow into the faith. Notice that he doesn't say their faith, but the faith. I'll apologize in advance. This is a little nitpicky on the language, but I think the distinction is worth our stop. Paul is not talking about their progress in their own faith as individuals. That's not illegitimate. Sometimes biblical writers do that to talk about your faith. And by that they mean the faith that God has given you personally, the belief and apprehension and trust of the gospel that you as an individual exercise by his grace. What Paul is talking about here is different. He says that he wants them to, prog- to make progress in the faith. As in Jude's plea that we would contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to all of the saints together. Paul is talking about the entire gospel. The, the full scope of biblical doctrine as a whole. Paul expects that Jesus is going to send him back for more ministry so that he can press worshipers farther into this, farther into mysteries like the Trinity, what it means for Jesus, the eternal Son, to become part of his own creation as man with us, the paradox of God's justice and mercy, fully satisfied and never broken, and what that means for us in the midst of suffering. He's going to tell them about the pains of sanctification and the goodness of it at the same time. 
He's going to explain to them more fully and demonstrate for them what it looks like to have full-orbed hope and a new heavens and earth remade for endless face-to-face worship. And doctrine like that, Paul says, doesn't stifle joy. Doctrine like that feeds it. He's not talking about some academic fetish for facts. He's not hoping to go back and make them all better bloggers so they can talk about how wrong other people are. He's not going to teach them to make names for themselves by being clever and pithy in the way they say things. This isn't the joy of Jesus in a smug vocabulary or the ability to prance around a playground singing, I've read someone you don't know. This is not the joy of disowning mystery. This is not the joy of claiming exhaustive knowledge, claiming superiority for ourselves, becoming cynical, or winning more arguments. Paul wants to press them to make better progress, more progress, more growth in the faith with joy. Just the joy of knowing Jesus more fully. Finding out more and more how fully we have been known and loved by Him. It's finding the joy and freedom that Paul has in the resurrection and that we see here. Over the last year, the Lord has been slowly killing one of my sinful affections. It's been very uncomfortable and very upsetting for me in different ways at different times through the year. It has to do with the ways that I want people to think about me and praise me for the work that I do and the way that I do it. But until just recently, I didn't see what Jesus was after. Until recently, I didn't see it as Jesus doing anything, so I was just annoyed by it. It was just inconvenient for me. It actually hit me all at once on Easter. I was on my way to Easter worship this year, and I was annoyed. I wouldn't have said it like this before, but I was annoyed because I knew that I had to go to worship and work at ministry without feeding this idol. All of a sudden, I just started laughing. I started laughing and smiling, laughing out loud, driving alone on my way to the theater like some kind of idiot. Jesus hit me over the head with it all at once to make an impression. It was as if I could hear him saying, you're upset because I won't let you carry your idols to my empty tomb with you. You're not supposed to worship them. And you're not supposed to bring them and celebrate with them because they aren't satisfied and saved by my resurrection, but you are. That's when it hit me. The whole year I've been telling other people that Jesus is too kind to leave them with their idols and that it's his goodness that feels severe at times but makes him jealous for our entire heart. I've been telling you that all year because it's true. But smiling and laughing by myself in my truck, about to cry for the joy of it, 
Jesus reminded me of the places it's true for me too. The kind of joy that Jesus gives doesn't keep you from suffering. But Jesus makes you able to see past it. Jesus is kind enough to show you why he gives you suffering, what he's using it for. Maybe not immediately, maybe not all at once, but always promising his goodness. Notice that Paul never says Jesus' joy will keep them from suffering. He says that God has given them to the faith and to suffering just like his. Real suffering, life and death suffering. And just because you aren't listening to this in handcuffs this morning doesn't make it any less true for you, so don't write it off. Don't think that your suffering is any less real. Spiritually, we face suffering all the time. And it fits the severity of Paul's description. We lose husbands and wives and friends and sons to death. For over a year now, it seems like New St. Peter's has had a funeral every couple of months. In a small church, that's quite a bit. There have been diagnoses over the last year and a half tagged with statistics about the probability of life or death. We have watched family and friends, people with names and faces, turn away from the gospel with hearts that seem dead. Sometimes we struggle with our own spiritual boredom and it makes us question whether our own hearts are alive or dead. It's not just spiritual suffering. In our congregation, we have some version of every bodily struggle I can imagine. I don't pretend to know everything about everyone in our church And I will leave the names off of this, but I think we would all be surprised if we could see everyone's stories at once. If we could get a glimpse of it and know the darkness out of which we have been called. The darkness that still calls to us and we have in common. At one time, sexually cruel or sexually abused. Addictions to eating and addictions to not eating. Gluttonies of sex or an unchristian refusal to see the beauty of sex in our marriages. Past or presence willing to share our bodies with anyone and everyone. Or refusing to share our bodies with husbands and wives the way the Lord would want. Past and present struggles with drug and alcohol addictions. We have struggles of body worship and body hatred. The curse in us means more than just our bodies being subject to corruption. It means for us that we are corrupt in the way that we see and the way that we use our bodies. But in the goodness of Jesus becoming flesh along with us, Jesus lived in our bodies the way we should. Not greedily, not sadistically, but sacredly and joyfully. He rose to give us new life. 
after having died, not weakly or accidentally, but purposefully, redeemingly. And then walking out of a tomb, holding life that progressively fills us, fills us with His grace. Grace that is alive and kicking in our bodies now. That pushes us to hope for the time when we get to see it consummatively at the end with a resurrection like His own. Paul says that Jesus will be honored in His body, whether in life or in death, and the same is true for us. With no less severity and with no less hope. Hopefully with no less joy. The grace of Jesus in all of these things reaches into us now and it arms us for our fight against sin. Whether we find it around us or in us. Met externally with oppression or frustration or internally with temptation and the strong pull of our sin's siren song. Sometimes in the midst of these struggles, we say, fighting this thing is killing me. And that's when Paul leans in with a grin on his face. And he says, would it really matter if it did? And that's what Jesus has given you. Progress and joy in the faith. And suffering not for punishment, but for His glory. You don't suffer to pay out any guilt. You don't suffer because God isn't paying attention to you. He gives you your suffering. He gives it to you in order to have all of you, body and soul, for Himself. He gives us suffering like Paul's, the kind that preaches the hope of resurrection to you and to others. Suffering that can't scare you off of believing the gospel. Suffering that won't back you down from fighting for it. So stand firm, arm and arm, and rejoice. Rejoice with Paul, with Stephen, with Polycarp, and with 2,000 years worth of saints who hate suffering now following the resurrection have looked death in the eye and sung out with sincerity sticks and stones will break our bones but Jesus won't forsake us suffering comes to taunt you and in the resurrection Jesus tells you to taunt it rejoice with Jesus who despised the shame and endured it because there was more joy on the other side of it because he's already, won, he's already won, no matter what you're facing. His good news for you and belonging to him is that you cannot lose. Rejoice, church. Yes, indeed. Rejoice, whether in life or in death. Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your kindness to us. That we do not suffer for our own sin. You have suffered in our place for it. As we sang earlier, you bore your wounds and they plead for us. They pour out effectual prayers. 
Now our wounds do not plead. Instead, they pour forth praise to you for your glory. You have given us suffering that is full of hope. You have given us joy in the midst of pain. Lord Jesus, in dying and rising for us, you've told us that we can never be taunted, we can never be bullied by the pains of the curse or death at the end. Because for us, in your grace, death is not the end. In your grace for us, you give us resurrection like your own. So now we ask that you would give us greater progress in the faith. And in that, you would give us boasting, not in ourselves, not in arrogance, but boasting in you, filled with greater joy and celebration. We ask all of these things in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.